Welcome to Lethal Dose, your favorite toxicology-focused podcast where we delve into true crime cases involving drugs and poisons. My name is Venus Dineko. I'm a layperson fascinated by true crime. My name is Kayla Woods. I'm an author and toxicologist. Let's get started. So, Venus and I wanted to give you all some sort of update. I think it's positive. I'm not too into incarceration, but Rita Mays, who was guilty of murdering veterans in a West Virginia senior citizen center, gets seven life sentences plus 20 years, according to an article that was published May 11th, 2021. The former nursing assistant who administered insulin without supervision to veterans in a Clarksburg, West Virginia hospital will spend the rest of her life behind bars. You want to bring us in, Venus? Mm-hmm. You brought another one that I had never heard of. I don't feel like anybody's ever heard of this, because I was mentioning it to the doctor, and he was like, what is thalidomide? And I was like, how has nobody outside of a chemistry background heard of this? Because this is one of the stories that they tell you in chemistry, but it's a big story for a tiny anecdote to get you to understand a concept in chemistry. It's a huge story. It's affected literally thousands of people across the globe, and yet nobody's ever heard of it. And I mean... I, I looked at the outline, and I'm wondering if it's just another one of those things, kind of like with Agent Orange and the Rainbow Herbicides. Mm -hmm. Are we just trying to bury this tragedy yeah. that happened? I think so. I think there's a little bit of pride in America's response to a degree, but it doesn't mean that we don't have people who were victims of thalidomide exposure in America that are being discriminated against and that are seeking compensation that they may never get. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Yeah, let's go, let's go back in time. We're going back to 1957 in Germany. The German company Chemie Gruenthal released a non-addictive, non-barbiturate sedative marketed as Contergan and Distival in the UK and Australia. Researchers found during early tests that it was nearly impossible to give animals a lethal dose. And this was an improvement upon barbiturates because when people wanted to achieve sedation, they were mostly using barbiturates and they were ending up with pretty lethal results. In the 1950s, it hadn't gotten too bad yet, but we were aware that there were certain side effects we wanted to avoid. By the 1960s, we would have lost Marilyn Monroe, Judy Garland, and Jimi Hendrix to barbiturates. And then in the 1990s, barbiturates were the drug of choice for Heaven's Gate. And what are some of the dangers of barbiturates? They're central nervous system depressant, and so they cause intense sedation and depression. They were often mixed with alcohol, which is another central nervous system depressant. And so you would just fall asleep and not wake up because of drug-drug interactions. And so we were finding that they were prescribed loosely and not in a way that opioids are prescribed loosely now, but doctors were like, oh, mommy's little helper kind of thing, or like, mm -hmm. you're, you're an anxious person, here's some barbiturates, you need help sleeping, here's some barbiturates. So they were over-prescribed, they were overused, and we were starting to see the side effects. We were trying to come up with 
hypnotics and sedatives and tranquilizers that were an alternative to barbiturates. That's where thalidomide comes in. The lack of a lethal dose was a really nice advantage because barbiturates have a lethal dose. And so it was thought, because there was no lethal dose found in animals, that it was harmless to humans, essentially. And so it was sold over the counter without a doctor's prescription. Other sedatives had also been used as an antiemetic, and that's one of the reasons that thalidomide was used and prescribed was as an antiemetic, and specifically to pregnant women. Antiemetic meaning anti-nausea? Anti-nausea, anti-vomiting, yeah. Got it, okay. And so it was prescribed to pregnant women for morning sickness, and they said that it could be used without any fear of adverse effect to the mother or the fetus. It was sold in 46 countries by 14 pharmaceutical companies, and it never made its way to the American market. That is, I think, where America kind of has pride in the story Mm. is because we already had the FDA, which was established in 1906. And so there was this FDA reviewer. Her name was Dr. Frances Kelsey, and she received the application from Richardson Merrill to sell the drug as Kevadon in the United States, and she rejected it. And the reason that she rejected it was that she said that the clinical trials were insufficient for mass marketing of the drug and that the physician reports that were included in the application were more anecdotal than qualitative. We were definitely trying to become more rigorous and scientific, especially by the 1950s, because, I mean, the early 20th century was when we were like, science can help us and we can live Mm -hmm. better through science. But... I mean, even the slogan, better living through chemistry, was a slogan of the 1950s. And so this is when we were like, we're going to be rigorous. We're not just going to, like, throw random chemicals at illnesses anymore. We're going to have a very, like... Procedural. Yeah, procedural, methodical way of using medicine. So Kelsey was like, I I don't know. And, And on top of that, she had already read in the British Medical Journal that the drug could cause painful inflammation of the peripheral nerves, which seemed to her to outweigh the benefits of a drug meant to be a sleeping pill. Yeah, because if you're having a lot of nerve pain, it might outweigh the medicine making you go to sleep. Especially when you're just trying to sleep or you're just a little nervous or you're just trying to get through your morning sickness. Inflammation of the peripheral nerves, that could be a long-term problem. So she didn't reject the application outright. She just requested more information from the manufacturer. And the manufacturer responded back to her and was very curt and said that thalidomide was safer than barbiturates, which, like, not much of an argument because we're trying to find something that's safer than barbiturates. And so it's like, that's a low bar. And then they didn't even respond to anything she said about neurological toxicity, nerve inflammation, the anecdotes rather than qualitative information. And she just wasn't having it. She was like, if you're not going to supply the FDA with the information that we need to safely move this on to the masses, then no, your application is rejected. And it really was kind of miraculous that she even did that because we were just living in a time then when we could have been like maybe the benefits do outweigh the risks maybe it'll be okay but kelsey in particular was sensitive to the idea that large numbers of people could be injured by poisons and like really people should have been but i think that the mass dangers that we are aware of kind of just fall back in the social consciousness and we forget about it i mean do you know This is kind of a sidebar, but are you aware of what the cyanide Tylenol murders are? Yes. Most people I don't think do. Most people, they ask, how come there's so much packaging on medicine? And it's because the cyanide in the Tylenol. One of the times. This happened multiple times. And so I think that some of the situations and, and 
some of the accidents that Kelsey was aware of maybe had been forgotten by people or just pushed aside. And she was personally impacted by one of them. So in 1937, early in her career, she had to work with a dangerous drug which went to market and then killed people called elixir sulfonylamide. Sulfonylamide was already known to be safe. You could use it in tablet form. You could use it in powder form. But this one guy, a salesman, like not a pharmacist or anything, but a salesman was like, hey, this sulfonylamide dissolves really readily in ethylene glycol. And so... I'm going to put it in ethylene glycol, and that's how I'm going to sell it. It gives it a nice raspberry flavor. It was actually tested, and the flavor, appearance, and fragrance were all found satisfactory. And so it was put on the market. Do you remember what ethylene glycol is? Because this was a season one episode. Antifreeze. Yeah. And so 633 <laughs> shipments of ethylene glycol were sent all over the country, and they were not tested. And this salesman didn't have to say that there was ethylene glycol, and so... I don't, I don't know what happened in the labs that tested it and were like, oh, it tastes great. It tastes like raspberry. This will go down really easy. I don't know why that happened, but it was released and it was sold and it killed 107 people. That led to the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act of 1938 requiring manufacturers to prove that a drug was safe before going to the market. And so Kelsey was personally acquainted with this act and the history behind this act, enough that when thalidomide crossed her desk, she was like, no, if there's any chance that people are going to be injured as a result of you having cut corners and not researched enough, no, I'm not going to make this available to Americans and give it an FDA approval. I mean, it's excellent that she had that unfortunate experience because maybe if this, and this is one of those, what's the uh, moral question, like, do you kill the one person or save everybody kind of a deal? It's like mm -hmm. a lot of people had to die. But if thalidomide went to market, then a lot more, maybe? A lot more. I don't think it's even a maybe. A lot more people would have died. So Merrill's application was rejected. Kevadon was never heard of in the United States, but it was still being sold elsewhere in the world. And just because it wasn't given FDA approval in the United States doesn't mean that it wasn't used here. Two American companies explored bringing thalidomide to the United States. In 1956 and 57, there was a drug maker named Smith, Klein and & French, and they distributed it to a couple of dozen doctors through a clinical trial. That's what it was called, was a clinical trial. So it's, again, with one of these things, like with the birth control, where they're saying it's a clinical trial, but they're, like, not fully informing people about it. Not saying, you're involved in a trial of a medication, yeah. Let us know if you have any side effects because that would be really important information for us to document. Mm -hmm. And even the doctors who were given it, they really shouldn't have been handing out the pills, but they weren't fully informed either because the pills were labeled SK and F number 5627. So it wasn't called Distaval, it wasn't called Countergon, it wasn't called Thalidomide. Doctors did not know what this is and they were giving it to people. What were they told it was helpful for? They probably were told that it was a sedative. I'm not certain, but since that sure. was like the on-label use, mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that they were told that it was a sedative. I mean, it's one of those things where, why are we just giving out pills based on what Jimmy Joe Bob from the pharmaceutical company says, like his word is scripture. Okay. Well, and like, Jimmy Joe Bob from the pharmaceutical company, all these salesmen were instructed to assure doctors that they didn't even have to keep track of what patients took it. <laughs> In 1962, after the fallout that we're going to get to, there was a handbook that was turned over to Congress for this Senate hearing that said, quote, 
do not sacrifice having an important man evaluate Kevadon for the sake of case histories. They were explicitly told not to do it. Don't be suspicious. Don't be right. suspicious. And then the tablets weren't even in a uniform way. They came in different colors and different shapes. Nobody knew what they were giving to people and nobody knew what they were taking. And they were instructed to not take any notes about what happened with it. That's not how a clinical trial is done. Yeah. What information are you getting? Nobody knows what they're taking. You don't know what it's doing. This goes against everything that I learned in science. <laughs> I know. In the fourth grade. <laughs> I know, like it's really simple stuff. So there were side effects and some people knew about them and some people didn't. And it wasn't just neuropathy, which was a significant side effect of thalidomide. As early as 1961, there were two independent researchers, Lenz of Germany and McBride of Australia, who confirmed that thalidomide was the cause of the worst man-made medical disaster in history in 1961. They reported that over 10 thousand cases of severe birth defects in children of mothers who had taken thalidomide during their pregnancy were being reported. And 40% of these babies died within months of being born. 40% of them did not make it to their first birthday. That's insane. It was an outrageous infant mortality. And we shouldn't be surprised at this point to know that None of the companies took any responsibility. They were like, you can't prove that this was thalidomide. There's so many factors that can be impacting so many people. And in part, they were right. Because not every mother who took thalidomide ended up miscarrying, having a baby with birth defects, or having a baby that succumbed to death before their first birthday. But a number of them did. And so then it became trying to find the pattern of what is going on that a lot of mothers are experiencing this. But not every mother is experiencing this. And it's hard when it's kind of like confirmation bias. Yeah. Almost. It's all tragic, but I think that the most brutally ironic part is that one of the first victims who became a thalidomide baby was a baby born to a Gruenthal employee around Christmas of 1957. Cue the Alanis Morissette. Apparently, this employee gave thalidomide to his pregnant wife off the record, just like, Hey, hon, I heard that there's this anti-nausea medication. I thought it would help you. And then their baby was born without years. To try to understand both sides and play devil's advocate for a moment, maybe that employee really did think that it was safe because he obviously wouldn't have given his wife something that he knew was unsafe. Mm -hmm. So... It doesn't sound like a bunch of evil sitting around a table, but almost like willful in ignorance more so. I think it's always a matter of that pyramid of power. Like, mm. whoever gave it to his wife was not in power. I don't know where on the ladder of power he was in Kimmy Gruenthal. And so I wouldn't hold anybody like that accountable. It's the people who weren't doing sufficient research, people who weren't running what we would consider to be ethical clinical trials at the time. It's people like that. Not necessarily the people at the bottom who know that this is at work and like, yeah, maybe I'm not supposed to take it, but I heard it's great stuff. Like, I, I don't don't blame that guy. I just think that it's just so brutally, terribly ironic that one of their own, so to speak, mm -hmm. was one of the first ones to be victimized by this drug. And I don't know that we would have the answers to this, but I wonder how that played out for him at yeah. work. I mean, imagine that water cooler talk on Monday. I mean... <sighs> just judging by the outcome and judging by what we've seen with Agent Orange, I would think he probably didn't tell anybody. Like, mm. maybe he said, 
And I, I don't know if she was born with no ear holes or with mm-hmm. just no ears. I don't know the full details, but maybe he was just like, yeah, the baby's death. We were unlucky. Yeah, we were unlucky. But I don't imagine that he just came out and was like, she was born without ears and we're trying to figure it out. Like, it was probably just not talked about. Mm. Now, according to Kemi Gruenthal, testing of thalidomide was being carried out using the industry standards of the time, which might have actually been true because although we were starting to come out with things like the Federal Drug and Cosmetic Act after elixir sulfilnamide and all of that stuff, that was in the United States. That was not in Germany. That was not in Mm. the UK. That was not in Australia. And so they may have been following industry standards at the time. For those places. For those places. Because it's also worth noting that because of the thalidomide disaster, the whole regulatory system was reshaped in the UK. And a committee on the safety of drugs was started in 1963 after thalidomide, which is why this is such a huge story, because it reshaped everything about drug regulation around the world and all of the countries that we consider Western. They they were all totally shook and then reshaped by this disaster. And so the United States was pretty unique in the fact that we already had established the FDA because we'd fucked up a lot. It wasn't that we were just smarter than everyone else. We fucked up a lot. And it's just everybody else, I guess, avoided shit like this until thalidomide. And so nobody else had anything like this to stop it if industry standards were being followed at the time. So there were no regulatory bodies like the FDA prior to thalidomide? There kind of were, because since medicine became a thing where you learn it in a university rather than from a midwife or like a medicine woman or a healer of some sort in your village, and you had to get a doctorate to learn it, and you had to follow laws. Like, we have had regulations since medicine, and especially since the 16th century. It's just that we didn't have anything like the FDA around the world once we really started becoming more rigorous like we were in America. Once we hit the 20th century, and it was like, okay, medicine, science, complete overlap, we're working together, and we have to be methodical in the same way that science is with our medicine. Mm-hmm. Like, we just didn't really have that. Were you going to ask something else? No, just... <laughs> Are you angry? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I am. But hindsight is twenty twenty, and I try to remember that. I'm trying to understand that maybe they didn't know what they didn't know. If they really did think that they were following protocols for the time... I guess it's one of those things where I kind of look at it the same way I look at minimum wage. So hang in there with me. Minimum wage means if they could pay you less, they would. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the standards of the time for a lot of companies, especially a lot of profit-driven organizations, meant that if they had to do it, they would. But if they didn't have to do it and they would just lose time they could spend making money, they wouldn't do it. And so I think that maybe they were following industry standards, but they could have done better. They could have had better clinical trial testing. They could have had more qualitative evidence rather than anecdotal. We had to get there and we had to have something show us why, I guess. But at the same time, I'm like, we didn't need that because we'd been using the scientific method for so long that that was already built into it. The other part for me is they said that this was safe for mothers and fetuses. How did we arrive at making such statement without testing? Yeah, they never actually tested on mothers and fetuses. They said that it was explicitly safe for them without ever having done any trials in pregnant women. 
that one's a big problem for me. Like, how do you sleep at night? Yeah, that I would say is definitely unforgivable for sure. Like, there's no way around the unethical nature of that whatsoever. Yeah, that one's inexcusable because, I mean, the other one's like, oh, we were just, like you said, doing the bare minimum. Mm -hmm. We were doing the bare minimum, but it's like, you are flat out lying. Right. And that is different and not okay. Yeah. So the FDA stopped thalidomide from entering the market in the United States. But as I said before, there were already doctors who had thalidomide available. And so there were people who have been impacted. There was a really good article by the New York Times that talked to a bunch of thalidomide babies who are now adults. One of them was a boy with birth defects who was born in Maryland to a woman who had been given thalidomide by her psychiatrist to alleviate nervousness. He was brought in front of Congress in America in 1962. Chicago area doctor had told investigators that a colleague had given him 400 pills. There were a lot of pills in America. Just floating around. Yeah. And so in the early 1960s, America started to do something about it. Kemi Gruenthal wasn't brought to trial in Germany until 1968. Still, to this day, has never gone as far as to actually say this was our fault. They've said, we're sorry this happened to you, but they've never actually taken any sort of accountability for this. That sounds like status quo, kind of, for what I've learned about pharmaceutical companies. In 1964, an FDA investigator said that 17 infants had been harmed in America, and that was just the first number that they were able to gather. Later, they determined that one doctor was found responsible for 40 births resulting from birth defects in Cincinnati because he was giving out thalidomide to what sounds like all of his patients. Do we know how they were able to find out about this doctor? Or, like, was he charting that I delivered 40 babies that had birth defects? I don't know how they were charting it. I mean, after McBride and Lenz released their report on the 10,000 babies that were born with birth defects, of course, there's women all over the world who were like, oh, shit, no wonder. Like, maybe they were included in the report, maybe they weren't. But Kemi Gruenthal never claimed responsibility. They were like, thalidomide is safe. There's all these women who have perfectly healthy babies. It's totally fine. But the UK and uh, Australia pulled both of their products off the shelves in 1957 and 1958, I think. And so nobody was taking it anymore. They were starting to investigate. And so I think then the FDA started to investigate, like, there are birth defects in our country and we didn't have FDA approval, but let's look into these birth defects. And in 1964, they had all of this information built up against the Richardson Merrill Company, who was giving out those sample pills. But federal prosecutors declined to press charges. What? Some of the company's activities had questionable overtones, according to the New York Times article that I read. But the evidence did not warrant criminal charges. Bullshit. Right? I mean, it just sounds like... Even then, we were treating companies differently than we treat people. Like, women aren't people, and fetuses are, but, like, once they're born, like, fuck you, you don't need arms, and, like, we're going to treat companies better. It's just so fucked up. Yeah, it sounds exactly like that, and also just, we didn't want to put in more work mm -hmm. into figuring out kind of what this is, so we're just going to say, yeah, it was questionable, mm -hmm. and leave it at that. But then, like, the FDA, I was having such a hard time talking to prosecution because prosecutors misreported somehow 
that only one baby in the United States had been born with defects from thalidomide. And then that's what the public heard. And then they heard questionable overtones, but no criminal charges. And then they just moved on. Kemi Grunenthal was never, I mean, they, they were brought to trial, but just nothing came of it. Nothing came of it anywhere. And so now we have all these people in their 50s and 60s who have lived their whole lives without any sort of compensation and they have severe birth defects. And maybe this is where I should read about the birth defects because you and I have already talked about it and we've already agreed that we're not going to show any birth defects on social media. We're going to take a very similar approach to Agent Orange where we're just not going to... Out of respect to the survivors. Yeah. If you want to find it, you can Google. It's free, but... Yeah, out of respect, we're just not going to be posting those sorts of pictures. But I can describe to you the kinds of birth defects that thalidomide induced. So there were limb defects, including damage to the limbs, which was one of the most common features of thalidomide, what's called embryopathy. Before 2011, and even now they aren't entirely sure what makes thalidomide a teratogen, but it is a teratogen. It does attack the embryo. And so there's just this umbrella term for thalidomide embryopathy, where there's nothing specific, but it's definitely just all from thalidomide. And teratogen means causing birth defects, right? Causing birth defects, yeah. The birth defects to the upper limbs range in severity from severe where long bones are missing with just a flipper-like structure consisting of digits or hand plate articulating with the body to less severe forms exhibiting a shortening of the long bones and normal distal bones. So some people are missing entire legs, some people are missing entire arms, some people have arms that end in hands with incomplete fingers and fingers that are growing in the wrong direction. It's really the whole range where it's just the entire limb is malformed and not in any specific way. Same with the lower limbs. The arms and legs can both have missing bones. Extra digits were also observed in hands or feet of the littermide survivors in reduced limbs as well. Characteristic shoulder and hip joint damage occurs in thalidomide embryopathy. For example, the part of the joint of the shoulder is more prominent and sharpened in appearance when the shoulder is damaged through thalidomide exposure. The hip joint can be completely absent, and this is also true for the pubic bone. Eye and ear damage is another hallmark. Eyes and ears develop in the embryo from week 4 and 5 until around week 8 and 9, which is around the same time limbs are rapidly growing. Thalidomide can cause small eyes, poor vision, and ocular defects. Although some children were born with both eyes, but poor vision in the eye that appeared unaffected, abnormalities in eye movement were also observed. Ear defects are usually symmetrical, ranging from the absence of the outer reduction of the ear. Deafness or reduced hearing, as well as cranial nerve palsies, were observed. Facial palsy and facial asymmetry are also associated with thalidomide embryopathy, likely due to weakened facial muscles muscles and severe nerve damage. They can be missing entire organs. Defects of the heart are likely the cause for many of the intrauterine and postnatal deaths. Urinary tract and kidneys also exhibit a range of life-threatening conditions, including horseshoe, rotated, and ectopic malformations. It just sounds so, so far from safe from mothers and fetuses. 
It really is. And when it was describing that the eyes and ears are formed around certain weeks, that turned out to be a critical piece of information to be noting. Because mm. like I said before, Kemi Gruenthal was like, there's all these healthy mothers who didn't have miscarriages and their babies are fine. And that was part of the mystery of thalidomide is why are there so many severe birth defects coming out of this population and so many people without severe birth defects? Mm. And what it turned out to be is that thalidomide caused damage to a developing embryo in a narrow window during pregnancy called the critical period between 20 and 36 days after fertilization. This narrow window initially made it difficult to determine if it was thalidomide, which was causing miscarriages and maldevelopment. But then it turned out that a single 50 milligram dose of thalidomide, a single dose, they only had to take one pill. And that was enough to cause birth defects in up to 50% of pregnancies during the critical window. Holy shit. I have a graph that I want us to share on social media, but I'm going to share it with you first. So let me share my screen with you. So do you see this graph? Mm-hmm. And so they were able to mark between 21 days and 36 days the pattern of birth defects. So it looks like between 21 days and 26 days, they found hip aplasia was common between 23 and 35, hip dislocation followed by amelia of the arms, focoamelia of the arms, preaxial aplasia of the arms, and some of them overlap. It looks like at day 30, if you were to take one single dose of thalidomide, you could end up with maybe seven different birth defects that were a possibility for the baby. And this isn't even all of them. This is just part of them that they were able to kind of pinpoint because this isn't mentioning any of the organ failure or anything like that. It's not mentioning ears, eyes. But as we already talked about with between weeks four and five and eight and nine, it was a total possibility that that could happen. That's great. I mean, I understand why they weren't really able to nail that because I mean, now that we know we're mm-hmm. not going to give pregnant mothers. So I mean, I understand how it's kind of challenging to dial it back yeah. and work backwards. But I mean, that's pretty important. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's just so crazy that that is such a small window yeah. for those devastating things to happen. Yeah, it's insane. And I mean, I guess I thought that a silver lining that kind of came out of it, when you're introduced to the idea of thalidomide in science, as I said earlier, it's because they want you to understand what a racemic mixture is. And so what that is, is if you hold up your hands, they're mirror images of each other. Mm-hmm. And so your thumbs should mirror each other, point your finger, Right. If you're not like a thalidomide baby, and I understand there are some people out there who this is unfair, but it's how they explain racemic mixtures. You can't superimpose your hands on one another because if you were to put your right hand on your left hand, your thumb Mm -hmm. would be on the wrong side. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. that's how they describe enantiomers. They are actually called right and left handed. And another example of an enantiomer like this is dextroamphetamine and levoamphetamine. And so dextroamphetamine has intense central nervous system effects responsible for aphrodisia, euphoria, and wakefulness produced by using amphetamines. Levoamphetamine, the left-handed enantiomer, has some nervous system stimulant properties, but it's most often used as a decongestant. So this is in cough syrup. 
And so because they're just a mirror image of each other, some of the testing that we have just sees a hand. And it's like, yep, I see a hand and that's amphetamines. And this athlete was using amphetamines before their race and you popped them hot. And then Mm. an athlete will be pulled out of an event and they'll be like, I've never used amphetamines in my life. I took cough medicine a couple days ago. And they're like, well, this test says so. Right. And so what happened was we didn't really understand enantiomers with thalidomide. I think that they either knew about the racemic mixture and said that it's fine, or they just didn't know it all. But one of the enantiomers was safe, and the other caused the birth defects. Mm. And the problem is, in your body, it will actually turn the right hand into the left hand. Oh, so even if they were like, oh, we've got it nailed down, that plan would be foiled. And actually, I was looking up the pamphlet because thalidomide is still used, which is what I was saying. Silver lining. It wasn't that we know about racemic mixtures. It was that we knew that thalidomide was a compound which attacked rapidly developing cells, such as an embryo or cancer. And so we were like, oh, well, maybe we can make something of this and maybe we can use it to treat certain myelomas or something like that. And so it is used today. And I was able to go find one of those pamphlets that's included. And the racemic mixture is so powerful and can change in the body that they have all these warnings like Pregnant women should not use it. People who may become pregnant should not use it. People under 12 shouldn't use it. But even men who use it need to use some sort of prophylactic contraceptive because it's found in the semen of men who use it. Oh, shit. It's kind of like if you're if you get with a pregnant woman and you're like, oh, this is fine because you can't get pregnant again. Like the thalidomide could still end up with the baby. In her system. Yeah. Yeah, that's super fucked. If the guy's sperm has thalidomide in it and that's the sperm that impregnates her? I don't think that that would, I don't, because it wouldn't be in the critical period. Got it. So I think that it really is just like while she's pregnant. And Mm. I mean, I don't know how well that's studied. I think that they've just found it and been like, oh, thalidomide's not good. You should not, 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 not. Err on the side of caution. Yeah, and so I don't know exactly how much damage it would cause, but, like, if a single 50 milligram dose is enough, like, Mm -hmm. yeah, definitely err on the side of caution. So we were like, okay, we can use it to treat myelomas, and we also found that we could use it to treat leprosy. And you would think that we would have this care to not give it to people who are pregnant when we're using it for those purposes. Mm -hmm. But, Mm. tragically, a new generation of thalidomide survivors has occurred in Brazil. Thalidomide is used to treat complications of leprosy in Brazil, which is sadly common and debilitating. Unfortunately, the drug is given to patients who share the medicine with others and who do not understand or are not informed of the dangers and damaged children are born. The damage to these children is similar to the damage seen in children between 1957 and 1962. And so there's just a whole outbreak of more thalidomide babies that have been recently born in Brazil as a result of, again, medical negligence. This is one of those things, just like we touched on with Agent Orange and also with the birth control pill, like things that doctors need to educate people about because not everybody knows, not everybody's going to care to research the new medication that they're on. Right. And that seems like a pretty big deal. Like, I understand that it's this quote unquote understood, you're not supposed to share your prescription with other people, but people do that. And so something to maybe tell those people would be, hey, don't share this because somebody could end up 
in a really bad situation and have yeah. a baby with birth defects. If you told me that, I probably wouldn't share my pills. They really need to be more careful because if it's so bad that they're warning in the pamphlet that you shouldn't expose your sperm to women if you're taking thalidomide, they shouldn't be in a position where they are able to expose other people with pills or their bodily fluids. Mm -hmm. Like There needs to be a much greater level of gravity for the whole situation that's just totally absent. How recent are we talking? Like in the last 20 years, in the last 10, last five? The last six years at least. Ugh. Yeah. Do we know if it's getting any better now that they're seeing this problem? I'm not sure. I feel like part of the reason that it got so bad is because it is Brazil and it's not white women in Australia and the UK and Germany. I think it's because it is Brazil. So I don't know how well they're assessing it. I don't know what they did to ameliorate that. I have no idea. Mm -hmm. What ended up happening with the thalidomide babies from the 50s and 60s? They never received compensation, and so they're just out there trying to live their lives. I don't want to say that they're lucky because they did end up living full lives of severe birth defects and, and effects that might be undocumented to this day. Because if the umbrella of thalidomide embryopathy is as wide as it was for the limbs and the organs, like it could be wider with complications and medical issues that they have. So I don't want to say that... Any of the thalidomide babies who are now adults are lucky, but they're also the ones that survived. They are the survivors of thalidomide. We'll never truly know how many babies were affected by thalidomide because the babies with the malformations that died in utero and were miscarried or stillborn, like, I don't think that we have full numbers on that. Well, I doubt that we do, because if a woman miscarried, what would make her sit back and think, Oh, I took these pills. I took one pill. Right, yeah, great great reminder. I took I took this one pill one time when I had morning sickness. I bet that's why I miscarried my baby. Like I don't think that any of those mothers were doing those mental gymnastics and even when the issue with the babies who were born with birth defects was coming to the surface, mm-hmm. What would make those women think, oh, I, I bet that's why I miscarried my baby? Yeah. I don't think they'd be thinking about that. And it's really sad because miscarriages are traumatizing. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing that they're like more common than we make them out to be, but for it to be like this. The other thing, too, that I was thinking of when you were talking about the babies who did survive and are in their 50s and 60s now, there probably are more that, like you said, had their issues with organs Mm -hmm. while they developed and who might not have an outward appearance of a birth defect. They might have had some complications with their heart, their liver, their kidneys Mm -hmm. growing up. And again, why would the mom think to ask the doctor, could this be due to... A lot of this is just so reminiscent of the rainbow herbicides episode because it's kind of like the pharmaceutical companies are going like, you know, like see how there's all of these problems because there's so many, you really can't nail us down for it. 
Totally. It totally feels like that because now these adults are trying to take them to court and here's what's going on with the thalidomide babies now. This is what they're getting. According to the New York Times article again, a special master appointed by the judge is investigating a range of claims against the firm, so that's Merrill, including that it misled plaintiffs about their chances for success because they did bring a case in 2011 and 2015 that both failed. A judge blamed the lawyers and said that they were employed in bad faith and dishonesty because they should have known that the statute of limitations would have expired on this, which is crazy that there's even a statute of limitations. Okay, what the fuck? Right? Around the world, thalidomide survivors have been making a renewed push for recognition because, much like the Agent Orange babies, they're not even recognized that this has happened to them. In Australia, that has meant the legal settlement. In 2015, Canadians persuaded the government to increase its compensation payments, and the Canadian government enhanced its assistance to survivors again in 2019. The Americans who believe they are survivors say they want to spread the word that thalidomide harmed babies in the United States, too. They want better medical information and research about the way their bodies were damaged. They want to remove the statute of limitations that have prevented them from successfully suing, and they are planning to campaign for compensation inspired by the success of Canadian survivors. One of the survivors is quoted as saying, I would like compensation. More than that, I would like the recognition that it did happen. Just that validation would probably mean so much. And that's not even getting treatment for what they go through on the day to day. They just want the recognition of just say that what you did was fucked up. Say that this is the reason why I don't have arms. Yeah. And Kemi Grunthal is not willing to do that. And Meryl is not willing to do that. And it just kind of seems like they're waiting for them to all die because I'm sure that they're living the best lives they can under the circumstances, but there's fewer and fewer of them every year. And so are they just waiting for them all to be gone before they're like, yeah, maybe we we fucked fucked up. up. But will they even say it then? My money is unfortunately on no. They will never own up to it. And the other part that really bothers me with finding that lawyer who is trying to advocate for these people and saying that you should have known that the statute of limitations had lapsed on this, I'm sorry, did it hit 10 years after these babies were born and then they sprouted arms? To me, there is no statute of limitations on something that is impacting you for your whole life. And especially if it could have organ issues that could come up later and later. Like, it seems like if you are impacted by this, there should be no statute of limitations. I agree. Fuck that guy. Whoever find that, like, may you have the life you deserve. So, I mean, hopefully we'll be able to do an episode... I mean, I doubt any time in the next year or two with COVID and everything, but hopefully soon enough we'll be able to do a follow-up episode that was, hey, the thalidomide babies went back to court in the United States and they're getting compensation and recognition. Like, I would like that. I would love nothing more than that. I would love nothing more to, for once, have a happy update. (laughs) I know, we so rarely get those. (laughs) Well, did you have any other questions about thalidomide? Do we know how common it is used for cancers and things nowadays? Is it a go-to treatment? Like, is it something that oncologists really gravitate towards? Or is it kind of the last line of defense kind of a deal? I wanted to say that it's not used anymore because of all of the failures that we've seen with it. Mm -hmm. 
But that's not true. In 2006, the Food and Drug Administration was given approval for thalidomide in combination with dexamethasone for multiple myeloma. So it is still used in cancer settings. In terms of chemotherapy, maybe that's a better way to go because chemo is usually administered in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of here's what you have to do and how you have to live your life and things. So maybe they're doing okay. I just, I don't know. It seems like such a weird thing to continue to use, especially with how recent the Brazilian birth defects have been. That's kind of why I asked. In 2010, the World Health Organization said that it didn't recommend using thalidomide for leprosy anymore because there's another drug they can use for it. It's difficult to control, but I mean, that was before the Brazilians started using it. It seems like we still can use it. I don't know that we should, and I didn't want to add this, but I guess I will add it because it's another way that I should have immediately been like, yes, we are still using it, is that, of course, it was another thing that was brought to the table is, could we use this against COVID-19? Thalidomide. <laughs> yeah. Well, and they they have tried to use it against HIV and Crohn's disease. And so there were some reasons that you could be like, I guess that would work. But also, it really hasn't worked in the past yeah. So maybe don't. I don't know. I'm just tired of every time we have an episode. I'm like, we tried to use this poison. Oh, by the way, this isn't a COVID treatment. <laughs> I'm so fucking tired of that. I'm tired of talking about COVID. I'm going to be tired of talking about COVID for the rest of my life. But I'm just tired of every time I look up a poison. I'm like, of course we've tried to use this to cure COVID. Yeah. I mean, I guess my last question would be just confirmation on for a person who is not pregnant, do we know if there is a lethal dose? You know, that's one of the things that they were right about in the 1950s, and it seems like they were still right about. So 18 cases of overdose have been reported in the literature concerning doses up to 14.4 grams. No fatalities have been reported and all overdose patients recovered. There is no specific antidote for thalidomide overdose. In the event of an overdose, the patient's vital signs should be monitored and appropriate supportive care given to maintain blood pressure and respiratory status. So when they were saying like there doesn't appear to be a lethal dose, I mean, there is. Dose makes the poison. We say it every episode, Mm -hmm. but it seems like it would have to be a lot because 14 grams of anything is a lot. So that's one of the things where if you're not pregnant, it seems like you're fine. Okay. It seems like it could be useful against things. It's just, I don't know, the the birth defects and all that. That just really. I was just curious, like, because they had said that back yeah. then and, like, how much of that rang true now. Yeah. But concerning anything else, like 50 milligrams for a fetus in that <sighs> 25 to 36 week period, bad news bears. That's a big difference. That is a big window. Yeah. Yeah, because 50 milligrams, people, that's nothing. Go look at the aspirin you have in your cabinets and see if you can find a 50 milligram dose and think that could fuck up a baby's life forever. Mm -hmm. Well, here's to hoping that we have a positive update for this episode in the future. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please like, follow, subscribe, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. For more Lethal Dose content, you can find us at Lethal Dose Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. For an overdose of content, subscribe on Patreon for exclusive episodes and much more. The show theme is Look Far by our dear wizard friend Fogweaver. More of their music can be found on bandcamp.com. Lethal Dose is created, researched, produced, and edited by Kayla Woods and Venus Dineko. 
stay safe, and remember, the dose makes the poison.